As we continue in worship now, we take our Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, it is our, one of the joys as a, as, a, as a Bible church to be able to open up God's Word. And here in God's Word, we, we hear God's, God's truths revealed to us, especially God's truths about Jesus Christ. And today's passage we're going to be looking at is Luke chapter 11, verse 14 through 28. Luke eleven fourteen to 28. And I will read this, uh, the text within the sermon. And so uh, hopefully you found the, the Gospel of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, Luke chapter 14, excuse me, 11, Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 28. Let's go Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. You sanctify us with your truth. We pray that this morning, as we come to your word, that may you cause your word to go forth and sanctify each of us. Lord, uh, <clears throat> refine us. Cut off those areas of our life where we allow sin to continue. Cut off those areas of our lives where we do not respond to your word as we ought. Help us to strive and, and to grow in holiness and Christ-likeness. Help us to be men and women of God. And help us to be uh, those who hear your word and do it. And Father, we pray especially that as we come to your word, now that your spirit would be our teacher. Lord, speak through me, or simply your messenger. Father, cause your words to go forth and do its work in the lives of each one who hears, wherever they are, whatever in whatever their need. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This past week uh, <clears throat> marked the end of one month of sheltering in place here in the Bay Area. And I don't know about you, but... Uh, I'm starting to almost get this weird, odd sense of a sort of a, a normal, normalcy to my life, a, a normal kind of routine in my weekly activities. Although I'm sure you've read in the news or heard on the news that the discussion about how we might uh, be removing and shelter in place and kind of restarting the economy is starting to begin. Until there is a vaccine or a cure uh, for the disease, our, our lives are basically not going to ever return back to the way it was before this pandemic. Really, we can expect to find a, a new normal, a, a new kind of routine in life in light of a world where there is COVID-19. So with this sense of a kind of our, our new normal and uh, that's going to be, uh, be kind of what we experience for the next probably month, two months, and maybe even the next year, I'm going to, I've decided that uh, we need to return back to our normal series in the Gospel of Luke. I trust that since the pandemic, since our shelter in place, the Word of God in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, 18, Psalm 121, Psalm 118, uh, were comforting to your souls, as was the focus on the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, which Pastor Roger preached on uh, last uh, Good Friday, Easter Sunday. For those of you who are new to the church, and I hear there is a good number of you because uh, many of our people are inviting our uh, relatives and friends to join in with us. I'm thankful for you. <laughs> I don't know who you are, but I'm glad that you're, you're listening. I pray that you have been finding your soul strengthened and comforted through our worship services. And if you have been encouraged during our times together, I want you to know it is it's not because of us. It is really because of the, of the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ. 
His, his death, His resurrection, that is the central truth of our, of our message of good news for all mankind. With a desire to know Jesus Christ more, this our, our Savior and our Lord, we have been studying through the Gospel of Luke. It is a wonderful book. It's a, it's a, Luke's Gospel was written by uh, Dr. Luke. He was a medical doctor and missionary. And he wrote it to a Gentile audience of disciples of Jesus. And he wrote with a, with a very intentionality, emphasizing specific details, leaving out some other details, but all to accomplish a particular purpose. According to his introduction in chapter 1, verse 4 of the Gospel of Luke, he wrote that this Gospel, uh, so that his audience might know for certain about the truths that they had been taught. So for all of us who are learning to follow Jesus, all of us who have been taught things about Jesus, loose gospel, this book, helps us to have certainty about what we have heard and learned about Jesus. We believe in Jesus not because simply someone else told it to us, but because God has confirmed it to us in His Word. And it's not just one Witness, but there are four witnesses, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all giving us the details of Jesus' life. The fact that this gospel is written with this purpose of bringing certainty to those who, uh, who have come to believe, to come to, uh, follow Jesus is an indication that among those who follow Jesus, sometimes there is doubt. Not everyone responds with faith or belief in the truths of Jesus. Sometimes we doubt the words. Many, during Jesus' life, heard His word. They saw His deeds. But while some received it, others doubted it. And even others rejected it. Our passage today speaks to the subject of skepticism and rejection of Jesus Christ. We just celebrated the the death of Jesus Christ on Good Friday. And we know that His death was accomplished ultimately because of the sovereignty of God, but by means of evil men who were skeptical and rejected Jesus Christ. And in this part of the Gospel of Luke, as Jesus is uh, heading toward Jerusalem, He begins to face greater opposition to His ministry. Matthew and Mark's parallel of this passage tell us uh, that leading the opposition were the religious leaders of that day. But Luke, in his telling of the tale, leaves out that detail. The issue for Luke is, is not about religious leaders, but it's about rejection itself. One does not have to be a religious leader to reject Jesus. And Luke wants his readers to examine themselves in light of this. He wants you and me to examine ourselves in light of this. And that we would all ask ourselves the question, as one who hears the word of God, do I or am I rejecting the truths of Jesus Christ? How do I receive God's word? How do I hear God's word? And in this passage, it's described about rejection. So there's really three lessons about rejecting Jesus Christ. As those who hear the word of God, we do well to heed these three lessons about rejecting Jesus. And I hope uh, as we walk through this, that we encourage you to examine your own life, that you would not be one who hears the word of God 
and yet rejects the truths of Jesus. And so the first lesson about rejecting Jesus that we must heed that's found in this text is the antagonism of rejection. The antagonism of rejection in verses 14 through 16. There are some who hear the word of God about Jesus who think that somehow in some way that they can just simply be neutral about Jesus. They understand truths about Jesus. They understand, oh yes, he's someone who, he, he's this, he claimed to be the son of God and he came and died. But for our sins, but nevertheless, they don't respond to it. They're either not interested in it, or they're waiting for more information. They're they're waiting for for more confirmation. They're not followers of him, but at the same time, they would say that they're not against him either. They're like Switzerland, kind of the neutral, you know. But what we begin to find out in these verses, and, and it's going to be fleshed out for us in the remaining verses of the text, is that to hear his truths and not heed them, not follow them, is to reject him. Neutrality is an illusion. There is no such thing as spiritual neutrality. Verses 14 to 16, we listen, listen to the word of God as I read it. And he was casting out a demon, as Jesus was casting out a demon. And it was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Others, to test him, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. Verse 14 provides for us this setting. Jesus was casting out a demon. And this was not just a one-time thing, because this was actually common throughout Jesus' ministry on earth. Luke chapter 4, verse 41 would describe that. Though during his ministry, many demons were being cast out. And though many demons were being cast out, it really wasn't his priority, though. As we've seen elsewhere in the Gospel of Luke, his priority was always to preach the good news of the kingdom of God about how one can enter the kingdom of God. How the, in the Old Testament, there was a promise of, of, a, of God's kingdom and God's king who would reign in that kingdom and where, who would, all the earth would come and experience peace and would bow the knee to this king. This promised king, this messianic king, was none other than Jesus Christ. And there was this promise of this king And Jesus tells people the good news of how one can enter into the kingdom, how one can become a citizen of this kingdom. That was his message, and he came to proclaim that. The exorcisms that he performed, the healings, the miracles, they all served to simply authenticate who he was, that he was the Son of God, so that people would listen or ought to listen to his message. On this particular occasion, Jesus casts out a demon that was mute. It was basically, it caused the, the man who, it, who it, this demon had possessed him to not be able to speak. People in the area had likely known this man most of their life. They'd known that he was mute and that he had a demon. So finally, when this mute man began to speak, and certainly he probably spoke praises to, praise to God and, and offered up thanks to Jesus, the crowds were, were amazed. It was, to them, something that was incurable, was all of a sudden incurred. And they were stunned and they were awed. And it was a spectacle. 
There's no question that a miracle had taken place in that, in that moment. A demon had been cast out and everyone was in awe. It was cool, as we would say today. It was a sight to see. Or it was a sound to hear. But sadly, as we find out, amazement in Jesus doesn't necessarily lead to faith in him. Because first of all, we see here that there are some who are just simply outright antagonistic. They're among the crowds, they're amazed, but they're antagonistic toward Jesus. Verse 15 says, Some accuse Jesus of actually casting out the demon by Beelzebul, who is the ruler of demons. Beelzebul is a word is is another name for Satan, originally referring to Baal the prince, the the god the idol god of Ekron. Eventually, it was uh, they called it. Uh, he it was sort of a a a common name or a, a nickname for Satan himself. According to some, these some Jesus' power was due to the fact that he was simply in league with Satan. He and Satan were on the same team. For them, it was simply a, a satanic plot to get people to believe in Jesus, and then they would he he would eventually turn and trick them into following Satan and not God. Essentially, they declared Jesus a false prophet. He was not a true spokesman for God, but a false spokesman. They attributed the good work of the Son of God to the evil deeds of Satan. In reality, what they were doing is they were slandering the Son of God. Others, of course, in this crowd were, were rejected Jesus as well, but they were not so, not as much antagonistic, not outwardly so. They were more measured in their response. Sure, Jesus did an amazing thing. Some even wondered, according to Matthew's parallel, that whether this was the Son of David, whether he was the Messiah. But they were somehow not yet convinced. And so they wanted to test him, to see if he really was the Messiah. They were demanding him uh, from him a sign from heaven. They, there were people who said, well, we need more proof. We're not sure. Yeah, I know you've done this, but what more can you do? We need to see something, in fact, more amazing. Now, it's hard to say what they were looking for. They had asking for Jesus of a sign. The reputation of Jesus had already gone throughout the whole nation of Israel. Beyond Jesus having already cast out numerous demons, what did they want? Perhaps to cure the sick? Check. To heal the lame and the blind? Check. To raise the dead to life? Yes, check. To command the wind of the wave? Check. Maybe they wanted the skies to somehow open and then the voice of God to, to boom out of heaven and somehow declare him to be, this is my son, my beloved son. Maybe that would convince them. Check at the baptism of Jesus. Jesus had performed, in fact, plenty of miraculous signs. Yet these who rejected him still wanted another sign. They needed more proof. They had more questions. The reality is, even if Jesus did perform another sign, and he would go on to perform many more signs, in fact, he performed the greatest sign, which we'll look at in the next uh, uh, later on, they still wouldn't have believed in him. Inwardly, their heart was in a heart of rebellion against the Lord. Inwardly, they didn't want to receive him. 
They, Jesus would, uh, would, uh, uh, would call them out for this. Jesus would address the desire for signs with the sign of Jonah later on in verse 29. We'll see that next week. But what we observe here in this exchange is a, is a reality that, that is not only true then, but it's a reality still for us today. Many people still come to hear the word of God. They hear it online. They, they hear it when they read their Bibles. They hear when they, they listen to, to radio, they, when they come to a worship service. But though they hear the word of God, they reject it by either attributing it to be false or attributing it to be unconvincing. It's either false. I've, I just figured, I listened. No, it's false. No, it's not true. Or no, listen. No, no, no. I'm not sure. It's not convincing. I'm not convinced one way or the other. Either way, whether you reject God's word because it's false or whether you reject it because it's unconvincing, it is nevertheless a rejection of the word of God. There is an antagonism in this rejection of God. Certainly, it's true that some of us take, have taken a little longer than others to come to respond to God's word, come to believe, in fact, the first time respond to God's word. But I don't want any of you to walk away from here having heard the word of God today and not respond to it with faith. See, the truths of Jesus demand a response. When God calls his people to obedience, to, when he speaks his word to them, he expects us to either obey or choose not to obey. The truths of Jesus demand a response. To not respond is to reject it. Now, in verses 17 to 26, Jesus answers the charge that, uh, that he casts out demons by the power of Satan. And this is our second point and lesson. And these are what do I call Jesus' answers to rejection. Jesus' answers to rejection, verse 17 through 26. First, we see the, uh, the rejection explained. It's explained in verses 17 to 20. Look at the word of God with me, please. But he knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house of divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So they will be your judges." But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus here, being the divine son of God, supernaturally knows what is in the thoughts of all of the crowds, the people who are, who are skeptical and rejecting Jesus Christ. Perhaps the words that they were speaking, they were speaking in the crowds, and they were not close to him. They thought they were just speaking to one another. But Jesus knows their hearts, knows their intentions. Even those who were asked, demanding of him a sign, he knows that they were, that ultimately their heart was not a one of sincere seeking, but really was a, was a out, was a sinful rebellion against the Lord. And so in answering the rejection, Jesus uses reason and logic. He begins by making a statement of an observation from life. And what Jesus stated here, and by the way, Abraham Lincoln, Lincoln himself uh, quoted in his famous speech, uh, is the old adage, when we look at it, is that a, 
kingdom divided will fall. It's kind of reminds me of together we stand, divided we fall. Jesus' accusers charged him of casting out demons by the power of Satan. And Jesus goes on to show in, his, in the next few verses how illogical this is. In verse 18 and 19, Jesus poses, accepts if the, if for the sake of argument they're, what they're contending. If Jesus is casting out demons by Satan, then, then the, the reality is that Satan's house is divided and it will fall. You see, a devil's advocate might say that Satan allowed basically a little loss in order to win the battle. He allowed Jesus to cast out one demon so that eventually he could trick enough more people and get them into his, into, fall into, into his uh, grips. But that's not what is happening in, in the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus was casting out demon after demon. In Luke 4.41, we read that demons also were coming out of many not only that, but there, then there was the legion of demons that was cast out of, of the man that, from Gerasene. You see, many countless thousands of demons were being cast out by Jesus in his life and ministry. It was not just a single loss, but it was a loss after loss after loss. If this is Satan's plan to, to, get, to conquer the world, it was a failure. Satan was losing the whole war. Jesus could not have been a tool of Satan. What's more, if Jesus was exercising by the power of Satan, according, Jesus says, then what about, if you apply that to him, he says, well, what about the other exodus? What about the Jewish exorcists that you have? If you contend that I cast out by Beelzebub, then the same could be said of them. To charge Jesus is to charge them as well of casting out by Satan's power. And so it was illogical for them to say that he was casting out demons by Satan because Jesus was... He was, kicking, he was kicking out and casting out a lot of demons. Then in verse 20, Jesus challenged the hearers of, of another, of the other possibility. They said he was casting out demons by Satan. Jesus says, well, the alternative, the only other alternative is, what if I am casting out demons by God? He actually uses, instead of the word, the power of God, he actually uses the phrase, the finger of God. This is an Old Testament reference that's actually found in Exodus 8.19 of the Egyptian magicians. Their reply when, when they started to see and recognize that Moses' power was of God. They would try to copy some of his powers, but they couldn't copy all of it. They realized, they, they declared to Pharaoh that Moses' power was the finger of God. It was, it was, a, it was a evident, irrefutable hand and power of God. That was accomplished then. And that's what we were seeing, what people were, what was happening in Jesus' ministry. If the power of God was behind Jesus, then Jesus says, the implication is this, that the kingdom of God has come upon you. The messianic king, the one whom they were all looking for, the one whom they would all knew that would rule over the world, would defeat and destroy all his enemies. This one, you are now, if he is before you, he is now before you, then you are by rejecting him, are acting like his enemy and you're about to be destroyed. They dared to reject him to, his per- to their peril. When all the facts are considered, to reject Jesus as a false prophet in league with Satan is simply irrational, illogical. And Jesus illustrates his point in the next step. 
We see it illustrated in verses 21 through 23. Verse 21, 23. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Jesus now tells a parable of a strong man, a a mighty man, uh, who is armed and on guard of his own house. It's possible, this could be a translation, it could be castle, in fact. But he's on guard of his house, his castle, and its possessions. And as long as he's on guard, his possessions will remain safe and undisturbed. Unless someone stronger comes along. And when that stronger someone comes along, Jesus tells us, and attacks and overpowers the king, <laughs> the <clears throat> everything is then taken away from that strong man and distributed to others, dispersed to others. From the context of this parable, Jesus is implying here that in quite uh, in the context of demon possession, that the strong man is Satan. His possessions are the men and women that he controls that he's darkened their eyes through his demonic forces. And Jesus in this parable is the someone stronger. Satan is no match for Jesus. Jesus easily assaults the kingdom of Satan and delivers men and women from their demon possession. Satan is helpless against the stronger power of Jesus. But what's more, Jesus then shares the spoils of victory. He distributes the plunder with those who are with him in the battle. He plunder, the, the plunder refers to more than just the souls of men and women whom we have the privilege to lead to the Lord, to salvation, but the totality of the blessings of salvation, forgiveness, eternal life, the Spirit, as well as the spiritual gifts. And in verse 23, the last verse, where Jesus says, He who is not with me, is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. This is the main point of his parable. That Jesus' exorcisms of demons are evidence that there is a a battle going on. There's a battle between Jesus, who's waging a war against Satan and his forces. And to reject his exorcisms is to reject who he reveals himself to be, the Messianic King. And he says, basically, as the stronger man who who has overcome the, the strong man, you are either with him, with Jesus, or you are against Jesus. To reject him, and especially to classify him as a false prophet, an instrument of Satan, is to be against him. But the ones who are with him are those who join together with Him, who follow Him, who answer to Him, who serve Him. And they join with Him in, in His task, in his, in his battle, in His fight. They join with Him in gathering in the souls of men and women. And that's our privilege as those who are followers of Jesus Christ. We are with Him. We are, our great privilege, our great task is to, is to save souls and bring them into the kingdom of God. But on the other hand, those who are against him, those who reject him, are in one way or another 
scattering men and women away from Jesus. They're not gathering, they're scattering because they're instruments of Satan. One commentator writes, People either follow Jesus and join with him in bringing others into the kingdom, or they stand against him and influence other people not to come in. Which are you? Are you with him or are you against him? How you respond to his word reveals. Jesus then proceeds in verse 24 to 26 to tell another story. But this time with the effect of of warning those who who hear him of the dangers and consequences of rejecting him. And so it's rejection warned. Warned in verses 24 through 26. Look at the word of God here. When the unclean spirit, so there's another story that Jesus tells. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And not finding any, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. In these three verses, we find a somewhat peculiar story about a demon who returns to possess a man again, but that, but when in returning, he brings along seven other demons, more evil demons, to do so. And the result is that this man is then worse off than when he had been possessed by only the first demon. Jesus doesn't really give any explanation. It's almost like he tells a story, but it's supposed to be kind of self-explanatory. And when you think about it, when you, upon meditation, considering the context of this, this story, it's all about exorcisms, it's about the context of, of demons and the rejection of Jesus, we can draw out the significance of the story. The unclean spirit that goes out of a man refers to a demon that has been cast out by exorcism. And when the demon returns to the man, he, he somehow, he, uh, he, he finds that the man's life essentially is, is back at, is in moving condition. Everything's in order. And when the demon possessed it, the man's life basically got worse. But once the demon left, the man had an opportunity to kind of, to kind of get his life back in order. The tidiness of the house may re- reflect simply the man's own efforts to live a good life. He's, he's now no longer under the influence of him. He, he tries to, to better himself. Many people do that today. That's why there's so much popularity in self-help, self-improvement books. We actually do believe that we can improve ourselves. There are people who do do that to some extent or other. But no matter how much self-help, self-improvement books you read, you will never be able to get rid of sin. But sadly, in this case, this man has made some some uh, some uh, headway into tidying his, his life, ordering his life. And the demon comes and discovers, oh, no. This man's this man is uh, this man's house is, is is ready for me to dwell in. It's nice, it's ready, but it's otherwise empty. Matthew's parallel of this story adds a description that it's not only just tidy in, in in order, but it's also was empty. That is, there's no one dwelling in that home in that in that person. 
So the demon, knowing, of course, the possibility of being cast out again, gathers seven of his more evil demons. And together they possess the man then. And the man is worse off. So how does this relate to the rejection of Jesus? It is a warning. It is a warning. To experience an exorcism, to have a demon cast out of you, but not to respond with faith in Jesus is to be like this man that's, that we read in this story. He, later on in, in chapter uh, 17, verse 11 to 19 of Luke, we're going to find a story about ten lepers who were healed. They were healed by Jesus. The leprosy was completely wiped off, taken away. But the sad reality is that only one came back and gave thanks to God in faith. Give thanks to God, to Jesus, in faith. The other nine did not. They were happy to be healed of the leprosy, and they went off their way, but they did not respond in faith in Jesus. You see, experiencing the power of Jesus is an amazing thing, but unless it is accompanied by faith in Jesus, it will leave you in danger of becoming worse off than before. Many people today still look to Jesus for His power, for His blessings. And really the issue is, what happens when you receive those things? What happens when you find what you're looking for? When you get, maybe you've been praying for something, do you res- or, and you receive it. Or you come to church because you're seeking something, and then you get it. Do you respond in faith? Or do you walk away because you've already got what you needed? As a pastor, and I'm sure many of you older saints out there have seen enough people come and go through the church. And you've seen them come looking for something from God. They come looking for that relationship, for that job or connections. They're looking for uh, maybe uh, a family. They're looking for some kind of sense of a social connection. They're looking for help through a particular trial. Maybe they're in need of material resources. And once people, those people have come and they've gotten what they were looking for through the church of Jesus Christ, it is sad when they then basically stop coming. They walk away. They leave with whatever they've gotten. But ultimately they leave empty-handed because they left without putting their faith in Jesus Christ. And they, in fact, become worse because they now think that uh, they're okay, they're good without God. Their own self-efforts to live a good life is enough for them. They're kind of, they're the kind of people that say, you know, I, I, they might even say they still believe in Jesus, but they say, you know, I believe in Jesus, but I don't really need the church. I don't need that, that Christian life. I just follow Jesus privately. But a good life, and they might even live an outwardly good life. He said, well, I, um, I can do good deeds outside the church. I can go volunteer at my food bank, and I can do volunteer with the Red Cross, and my Nelka Community Center. I can do all these good things. I don't really need the church for that. But a good life without Jesus condemns you just as much as a bad life with demons. There's a warning for all of us that are seeking Jesus Christ, seeking 
What do we, when we come, especially when we're new to the church, we're seeking Jesus for something. We're seeking from God something. And we have an idea. Usually there's some felt need that we have. And what we don't realize is God has used that to draw us to himself. But sometimes when we get whatever that felt need is, we, for, we, don't, we fail to learn what is our true need. And our true need is salvation in Jesus Christ through faith in him. Don't walk away. Maybe walk from the church thinking, oh, what I need, I've gotten what I need, but I don't need anything else. I don't need Jesus. That would be a mistake. You will be worse off because of it. And now we come to our third, final lesson that Jesus teaches us here in verses 27 to 28. And that is the alternative to rejection. The alternative to rejection. 27 to 28 of chapter 11. While Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. This account in these two verses is found only in Luke. And Luke records it here for a purpose of showing us that the alternative to rejection of his word is to receive his word in faith. As Jesus was saying all these things about demon possession, about the dangers of rejecting him, and about the, the illogicalness of of thinking that he's, from Jesus, uh, that he's casting out demons by, by Satan. And, and the reality is that all the evidence points that he is one who casts out demons in the, by the finger of God. As he was saying all these things, refuting and warning his skeptics and critics, his wisdom was on full display. And, and, and this one of these women in the crowd shouts out a blessing upon his mother. Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast of which you nursed. She's basically praising, uh, <clears throat> uh, pronouncing a blessing upon and praising uh, his mother Mary. In doing so, it, it was a fulfillment of Luke chapter 1, verse 48, where Mary herself in the Magnificat prophesied that future generations would count her blessed. And it began right here. And so what the woman said was true. But Jesus offers an improvement on her beatitude, her blessing. A greater truth that Jesus wants those who hear his word to understand. Jesus says, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Obey it. Keep it. Mary was blessed not because she gave birth to him. But Mary was blessed because she heard God's word through the angel and she obeyed it as difficult as it was. In fact, earlier in Luke 8.21, Jesus said, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Jesus emphasized the blessing, that those who, uh, the blessings of God, uh, what it means to be part of his family, what it means to be uh, one who identifies with him, is to be one who hears the word of God and does it. It's not enough merely to be a hearer of God's word. I think for us, all of us here at the San Francisco Bible Church, it's not enough to come to Sunday school 
or to, and to service and just to sit there and hear the word of God taught. You must respond to the word of God that is taught. You must observe it. You must keep it. You must follow it. You must live in light of it. You must pray about it. You must praise God for it. Because if week in and week out, you come and you hear the word of God, but don't ever respond to it in faith, then you are guilty of rejecting God's word. And your soul is in peril. Instead, pursue the alternative that Jesus offers and respond to his word. Respond to the truths of Jesus by faith. Meditate upon his word today. I pray that you would not just hear today even the sermon and then just go off and have lunch and, and be all happy. Go lucky and say, ooh, um, it was a, that was nice. Meditate upon God's word. Ask God to help you to put it in practice in your life. Ask Him to open doors for you, to share it with someone else. Ask Him to help you to spend time in God's Word. Learn more from Him yourself. As those who hear the Word of God, brothers and sisters, let us be those who live out God's Word. We'll conclude simply, and I end with time, with simply a, a a, something, a passage that's familiar to all of us. The New Testament brings out the same truth uh, a little later. The New Testament uh, 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 authors bring this out in a later point in the book of James. James chapter 1, verse 21 to 22. I think it's very familiar for all of us. I just want to read it for us. It's a reminder and can just conclude with this. James writes this, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all the remains of wickedness. In humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Brothers and sisters, let us put aside all sin, all filthiness, all wickedness, And let us be men and women of God who receive God's word with humility. The seed that's been implanted by God, let us receive it. Let us follow it, obey it, observe it, do it, keep it. Because this word that we receive about Jesus from from his mouth and from the, uh, the mouths of the other apostles, this word of God is able to save our souls. And prove, we let us prove ourselves doers of the word and not just merely those who hear the word because those who only hear the word and do not do the word have their souls imperiled brothers and sisters how will you respond how do you respond to the hearing of God's word let us be those who receive it and not reject it Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and thank you for this reminder to us. God, as we continue uh, our life, uh, almost a, a new normal for us as we live lives sheltering in place, well, what do we have but you and your word and your spirit? And Lord, as we spend time with you, as we spend time in your word, 
as we hear it taught, as we uh, and study it, Lord, cause us to be people who more, more than just hears your word, but those who do it as well. Help us to find ways to live out your word in our lives. Lord, you help each of us today to respond to your word. Help us guard us from being those who would sinfully, rebelliously reject your word, to reject its truths. Lord, if there's any area of our life that where we have been rejecting your words, any sin that ongoing in our life, help us to repent of it, Lord. Help us to turn away from it. Help us to be those who follow after you. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for your, the, the truths of Jesus and the, how one can become part of the kingdom. And Lord, I pray, especially for those out there who do not yet know Jesus Christ, who are seeking And Lord, today, while it is still today, help them to turn away from a life of sin and turn in faith in Jesus Christ who died on the cross and rose from the grave for their sins so that through faith in Him they might receive the hope of eternal life that comes from Christ Jesus, the adoption into your family, the blessedness of of the hope of heaven, the hope of being in your presence. Oh God, we pray that you would draw them to yourself. Open up their eyes to see. God, we pray that you would continue to use each of us in this battle that is ongoing. Help us to be those who are with Jesus and gathering into your kingdom souls of men and women who would turn in faith in you. Lord, open doors for us, we pray. Help us to be bold and courageous and humble. God, we ask that you continue to build your church. In Jesus' name we pray.